Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week was our introduction to the book of Nehemiah. If you missed that, you can find it on our website. I encourage you to, to hear those things. Many of your Bibles are going to have information about the, the history and the background and the date of writing. And so we didn't go too deeply into those things. I encourage you to, to look into them. The history lesson that we got this morning is really helpful in understanding how how we got to where we are in the book of Nehemiah. So as we start our, our journey together in this book, remember it's tied closely to the book of Ezra and it involves a lot of the same characters. So we've got King Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia, the Persian empire. We've got Ezra, who mainly served as a priest to God's people. Zerubbabel, who kind of helped lead the rebuilding of the temple that's already taken place. And now we've got Nehemiah, who, as he says at the end of this chapter, is a trusted official. He is a cupbearer to the king. That's why he sips wine from the goblet of the king. Okay, so let's look at chapter 1. We're going to look at all 11 verses this morning. I'll read them together for us and then uh, have a word of prayer. Let's read chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you remain, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your out, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Would you pray with me? Lord, we see the gospel in these verses because we see the reality of our hearts. We see the reality of who you are. And we see how you have chosen to redeem your people. Thank you for this, uh, this chapter, not just of, of biblical history, of world history, but also of redemptive history. 
that we get to see the thread of redemption continuing to run through even the Old Testament. And we get to see these pictures of the Redeemer even here. And we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So look back at verse 1. Very just simple setup of the whole book, really. This tells us some of what's written uh, in the book here are Nehemiah's own words. You can see he he kind of talks in first person in verse 4 using I. Um, it's kind of the same way with the book of Ezra. Some of that book was written by Ezra. We see that in the first person, the way he writes it. But some of these are, so some of these are kind of like memoirs, if you will. They wrote them from their personal experience, and we see this already in chapter one. We're not sure, though, if the final authors of Ezra and Nehemiah are the, the actual guys, Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not really sure. Some think they were written by possibly the same author as First and Second Chronicles, because if you look at where Second Chronicles leaves off, Ezra kind of picks up right in the same vein. So it could be that. Um, like a lot of the other Old Testament books at that time, they had those first few books of the law of history available to them. And so they had lots of other things to reference. Um, it's possible that you'll see third person in the book of Nehemiah. It's possible that he just switches from first person in the eye to the third person where he references himself as Nehemiah amongst other people. Uh, so we're not really sure, but we know that these are the events recorded in his lifetime. You can see in verse 1 that these were the words of Nehemiah. So we believe that that's true. And he jumps right into the story. There's not a whole lot of prologue. Um, is that the right word? Prologue? Epilogue comes at the end, right? Okay. So there's not a whole lot of setup here. He just kind of jumps right into the story. Look at what he says. Now it happened, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So Nehemiah says that it was the, the ninth month, basically, of the 20th year of the reign of who? King Artaxerxes. And he was with the king, being cupbearer, he was with him closely. Uh, and he, they were in Susa. The ninth month in, in their calendar would probably coincide with kind of like this November December of our calendar year. And so Susa was kind of like the, the winter home for the Persian ruler. And so that's likely kind of where they were at the moment. This is the same Susa, if you know your Old Testament history, same Susa where Daniel gets the vision of the ram with two horns and where really the events of the book of Esther take place. During that time of year, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, and some other friends from Judah, they show up to the city. We don't know the history. We don't know why they ended up coming, to, if they came to find him specifically, to tell him. We're not really sure. But they, they show up, and he gets into this conversation with them. And he asks them uh, concerning the Jews who had escaped, it says, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And here's how they answer. You, you can see this in verse 3. They said, well... They're, they're there, but they're in a lot of trouble. Shame. The walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. We talked a little bit about the significance of those things last week. But that's it. That's what, that's what they say to him. At least what's recorded for us. It's not this lengthy, detailed account. It's like, our people are in trouble. Our people are shamed. 
That's all he was told. Now, I, I thought about that this week. And I thought about if, if somebody came to us in our modern day culture with this kind of news, how we would respond. So think about that aspect with me. If we were in Nehemiah's shoes in today's world and somebody came, we're living far from home, and somebody came and said, hey, your, your hometown is in trouble. Your kinsmen, your people are, are ashamed. Many of us might say, okay, I think I can help. Let me grab my checkbook. I'll write you a check. I'll help fund, you know, maybe some wall rebuilding. I'll give what I can. And you take this back and go help. That's all I can do. Some of us would have probably responded that way. And even though Nehemiah was a servant, he was still working directly with the king and he had favor and he could have had wealth in order to have that kind of response to the people who came and told him this. He could have said those things. He, couldn't have just, he could have just written a check to cover it, so to speak. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. That's not what he did. I think about it too. He could have also responded and said something like, man, that's a real bummer. I'm really sorry to hear that, but you know what? It doesn't really affect me a whole lot. I got a pretty good gig here. I got a good thing going on. I'm sorry, I just can't get involved right now. It's not a good time for me. <laughs> this is unfamiliar. This isn't what Nehemiah does at all. And, and I think I, re- I read this week that you could use the word patriot really applicably here to Nehemiah. He wasn't with, he was, he was miles, hundreds of miles away from where his hometown was. It likely even born there where he was. And he loved his people. He was in service to the king with a good job and a fairly easy life. But at the first hint of trouble in his hometown, this deep love for his kinsmen awakens. And so he was a patriot. Look at verse 4. This reveals how much he cared, how distressed he was as a result of hearing this report. It says that he wept, he mourned, he prayed, and he fasted. For how long? 12 hours? 24 hours? What does it say? For days. For days. When was the last time you prayed and fasted for days? Why is he so broken? About this news. Why is this affecting him so deeply? Surely he knew of the destruction of Jerusalem before his time. Remember, Jerusalem was breached and ransacked under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. It's possible that the rebuilding process that Ezra and Zerubbabel had started was stopped again, or the wall building even was started and stopped while he was there in Susa. We're not really sure how much contact Nehemiah had with the people from his hometown before the situation. Probably very little, depending or considering what he was uh, asking his brother and his friends. Maybe he thought that the, the temple project rebuilding with Ezra, Zerubbabel, maybe he thought that that would have kind of spilled over into the wall rebuilding and they would have just kept on going and doing more and more. Maybe he thought it was in better shape than it really was. I think it's also possible, if you consider where Jerusalem was and and all of the location of those things, it may be possible too that this is where his forefathers were laid to rest. And that made it significant to him. 
And so he didn't want thing, anything bad to happen to that. In the end, we really don't know definitively why this news impacted Nehemiah quite like it did, but I don't think that's even the point of this. I think the point of it is how he responded. And I pointed out last week that Nehemiah, when he finds out this bad news, he doesn't wring his hands in worry. He doesn't complain loudly or whine about it. He doesn't even point fingers at anyone about the state of what was going on in his hometown. What was Nehemiah's first response? It was prayer. Nehemiah's first response to bad news was prayer. Verses 5 through 11 record this prayer, a prayer that I would say is an active prayer. And I think that there's some significance to that. Because not only did he pray, which is essential, not only did he fast, which is meaningful, he also put that into action, as we'll see in the coming chapters. The first way he put it into action, as I've said, is to fast. He fasted. Now, if you've ever fasted for spiritual discipline purposes, you know that it is not easy. It's not a walk in the park. God has designed our bodies to need sustenance and calories and food And when we fast, we're limiting or abstaining from those things and replacing food with the word of God, the food that actually sustains us spiritually. But it's not easy because physically our bodies are saying, hey, you're forgetting something. Something's not right here. You aren't flippantly just deciding to fast. Even those who fast for um, medical purposes or things like that, it's not just this easy, well, I think I'll just not eat today kind of a thing. You plan for it. It's intentional. Fasting, if we look at Daniel, if we look at Ezra, and now Nehemiah, but also Esther, all of these went through periods of fasting, sometimes for days at a time, and it was always linked with some big situation, usually trouble, but it was always linked with something else. It was always linked with prayer. Fasting was always connected with prayer. Even for Jesus, fasting is connected with prayer. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. You wouldn't think these would be close chronologically because of how they're organized in the Bible, but they would have been pretty similar in time. And Daniel prays a prayer that sounds an awful lot like Nehemiah's prayer. And I want to point out and read it together Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 through 19. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. 
and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you see some of the similarities here? with Nehemiah's prayer. I, th- I think that one of them had access to the other. I think Nehemiah had access to, da- to Daniel's prayer. And he echoes a lot of the same things. He uses a different phrase than Daniel. He uses the phrase, God of heaven. Nehemiah does. He uses it four times in his book. And as he prays, and I think this is really key here, as Nehemiah begins to pray, his theology begins to come into view. As, as always does when people pray. His theology of God can be plainly seen. If you're not there, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at this prayer in verses 5 through 11. He understands that God is creator. God of heaven. He's before all things. He is great. He doesn't pray to the angels. He doesn't pray to all the, the heavenly hosts. He certainly doesn't pray to a pagan god like the sun that the Persians did, or certainly the Egyptian people prayed to. They didn't pray to some other lesser God. He prays to the great God, the God who is before all things, a God who is to be feared. God is to be revered. And he says that he believes that God keeps his promises. He calls God the covenant keeper. He believes this about God. He believes that God is merciful and loving. Who does he say? That God is merciful and loving towards to those who love him and keep his commands, which would be his people. They're really the only ones who cared about keeping the commands of God, and they weren't doing it very well. So in verse 5, Nehemiah understands who God is. But in verse 6 and 7, he understands who mankind is too. And this is key. Look at verse 6. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And here's what he says. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So he knew who God was. He believed it. That's theology. The study of God. What you believe about God. We see it here. So he knew who God was. He asked him to be attentive, to hear his prayer, to see the calamity that had fallen upon his people. And he recognizes who he is, who his father and his household is, who the people of Israel are. They're sinners. He addresses the elephant in the room, if you will. Because when we go to prayer, 
before the Lord. We can acknowledge who God is. We can recognize it. But if we don't recognize our own sin, we've missed half the picture or more. But Nehemiah doesn't. He addresses the elephant in the room of sin. He says, the people of Israel have sinned against you. I, my father's house, we have sinned against you. So his first response to bad news, it's not worrying, it's not grumbling, it's not uh, blaming or complaining, it was prayer. And the first part of his prayer acknowledges who God is, a great, merciful, and loving God who is to be revered. The second part of his prayer acknowledges who mankind is, a disobedient people who have sinned against a great and holy God. Look at verse 7, he goes on. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. So even though Nehemiah was unfamiliar with the current problems in his home, hometown, he knew the people's history, didn't he? He knew the history of disobedience. He remembered what Moses had said years er- earlier about cause and effect. Kids, did you hear that? He remembered what Moses had said earlier about cause and effect. Look at verses 8 and 9. I think that's what this is talking about. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Here's the word. If you're faithful, I'm sorry, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, So even though you may be scattered to the very ends of the earth, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah, even though he was far from home in service to a pagan king, he must have known his Bible because he knew his history. He knew the words that God had spoken to Moses concerning him and his people. And he's referring back to them here. One more uh, place to visit together this morning in Deuteronomy. Turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4. To see in a little more clear detail the words that God did speak to Moses. Nehemiah just kind of sums it up. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 25 is where we'll start. Deuteronomy four twenty-five through 31. When your father, I'm sorry, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You'll not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 28, and and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It sounds a lot like Isaiah 44, doesn't it? Verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. 
This is, this is important. Listen to verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew that if God made a promise, if God swore to his forefathers that he was going to do something, that he would do it. Did you hear the cause and effect? Nehemiah mentions it briefly. Deuteronomy 4 goes into it a little more detail. The cause and effect here, it's, it's if you act corruptly, which involved making idols, God says, if you do this sort of thing, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be scattered. It's not going to go well for you. You shouldn't do it. Don't do it. But if you do, here's what's going to happen. You'll be scattered among the nations. Nehemiah is living this out now. He's part of a a scattered people. They're not all back. They're not all where they want to be, where they should be. It's kind of like Nehemiah knew his Bible and actually believed God when he said, you will seek the Lord and you will find him in Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. You will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't this what he's confessing to the Lord now? God, we have sinned. We know who you are. You're faithful to your covenant. You keep your promises. The problem is with us. We have blown it. We we are seeking you. We want to find you. Nehemiah 1, verse 9, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them, and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So there's cause and effect both ways, negatively and positively. Negatively, you disobey, you do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, you'll be scattered, it's not going to go well. But there's also a cause and effect that's positive here that we can't miss. Positively, he says, if you seek me, you will find me. And I will gather you back, make my name dwell amongst you again. Nehemiah knows what's in the heart of man because he knows what's in his own heart. He knows what's in the people's heart. But he also knows who God is. And since he knows what the heart of God is, he appeals to God's mercy and love in remembering his covenant. That's not wrong for us to do, brothers and sisters. It's not wrong for us to look at his word and say, God, don't forget. But when we say don't forget to God, do we actually think that God has forgotten Certainly not. So when Nehemiah calls on the Lord to open his eyes and his ears, is are God's ears and eyes closed to him? I don't think so. I think when Nehemiah is addressing the Lord, like here in verse 10, I think it's as much for Nehemiah to remember it as it is to call the Lord's mind back to it. Look at verse 10. He says, They are your servants and your people. God hasn't forgotten this covenant. He knows this. The people that you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I think this is just as much for Nehemiah to remember it as it is for God. We've encouraged you all to do this before. But when we wake up each day, preach the gospel to yourself, right? Be reminded of the Lord's goodness and strength and power. Be reminded of your own 
sinfulness. Repent and thank the Lord for a Redeemer who has come. Remind yourself of these things. And Nehemiah is reminding himself of these things. Because surely God remembered the covenant. But look at verse 10 again. Just scan through it real quick. What word do you see repeated over and over? Maybe you didn't catch it the first time. What word do you see? Go ahead and say it. Your. The word is your and you is once in there too. Why, why, is, why do I point this out? Why is this significant? He says, they are your servants. They are your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. That's not insignificant, I don't think. The people are vulnerable and they're distressed in Jerusalem and Judah along with the people of God in every other part of the world. But these people are his. They're God's people. He's saying they're your people. They're your servants. They're his servants. You know why I emphasize this? is to remind us that it's always been about God who does the work. It's God who has always acted righteously and justly and lovingly. Think back to Israel's history. God delivered them from Egypt. Now, Moses and Aaron, had, a, had a, God used them in it, but they didn't perform those miracles. That was God. Parting the Red Sea, fleeing from those Egyptians, that was God. Providing water from rocks in the desert and food just randomly appearing on the ground from heaven. That's not the people. That's God doing these things. It's even, we even see God's hand in using their captors to discipline and judge them to then at some point show mercy and allow them to go back. God has done all of this. It's God, not the people. And the emphasis is rightly focused in here in Nehemiah's prayer on what the Lord has done. Not on what Israel has done, not on what Nehemiah has done. In fact, when we read from Deuteronomy, or from Daniel's prayer rather, he says it's not because of us, but because of your great mercy, he says. So think about this. These are the three blanks on your notes right together. People sin, but God redeems. People's hearts are corrupt, but God loves People are unfaithful, but it's God who keeps his promises. You see that from what Nehemiah is praying here? I don't think this is one of those situations where Israel, people of God, just haven't been holding up their end of the bargain, though they certainly haven't. But it's one of those situations where they're only even alive at all because God has sustained them. Even though they've been scattered by their disobedience, God has sustained the remnant and he always will. They're alive because of God's covenant love for them that he will not go back on. Now, it's very interesting to me as we come to the end of Nehemiah's prayer that he's living in the lap of luxury, so to speak, as much as a servant can, and yet he's so broken by the news of his friends. And it, it, it forces me to apply this to my own life. So I'm going to make it apply, make you, force you to apply it to your life too here. Do I care about my friends and loved ones this much? Remember I asked earlier, when's the last time you prayed and fasted 
for situation. That's not to condemn you. It's not to guilt you or any of those sorts of things. It's just to reveal to us how much maybe we try to rely on ourselves instead of the Lord. But Nehemiah gives us a great indication here that he loved his friends, his family, so much that he was broken and fasted and prayed for days, for a long time. Do I care about the sorrows of others this way? Do I care about my friends and what they're going through more than I care about the score of the football game later today? Do I spend more time considering myself and my own interests than I spend considering what my fellow church members are experiencing? Nehemiah was far removed from experiencing life with his kinsmen. He wasn't walking around. He wasn't living in a place with shattered walls and broken gates. But he cared about them enough, as we'll see in the coming chapters, to completely uproot his life to go and do something about it out of care for them. But notice how it started. I want to keep bringing us back to this idea. How did it start with? He didn't just hear it and hit the ground running. Where did he, what did he do? He stopped and prayed. He fasted even, but he prayed. His care for his brothers and sisters didn't stop just at his bedside prayer time or in his prayer closet. Those are good things. He didn't, heartlessly pacify his friends with this like, oh, well, I'll pray for you kind of thing and then never actually do it. That wasn't Nehemiah. Nehemiah was so moved by the situation of his brothers and sisters that he prayed intently and he fasted purposefully. This was anything but a passive or heartless effort. His life, Nehemiah's life was about to change. He was getting ready to move from prayer to action And in verse 11, we see him that he asks God to prosper what he's about to do. Look at what he says, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Did you see the word that was repeated five times again in that sentence? Your Nehemiah is confident that the Lord heard his prayer and he asked him to give him favor when he would soon be going before the king. So here in this sentence, specifically verse 11, Nehemiah is his servant specifically. And this man that he mentions is Artaxerxes, the king. If you skim down to the first verse of chapter two, you'll see that the story skips forward actually a couple of months. I looked this up because I didn't know this offhand, but the month of Chislev and the month of Nisan are about three, maybe four months apart. I don't know why there's been that length of time before he's able to talk with the king and return home, make that plan. But think about this. The moment he hears bad news, he stops to pray and fast for days. And now we've got possibly three or four months before he even approaches the king about this issue. Now, I don't know that he fasted for four months, but I believe that Nehemiah was in intense prayer those, for those weeks, for those months, for his people, praying, verse 11, 
Lord, be attentive to my prayer. Consider your servants. Don't forget them. Don't forget your covenant. Please, Lord, grant me favor as I go before this man. The burden he felt for his people, the intense love he had for them, despite not probably ever even having been to Jerusalem before, he moved him to this kind of intense prayer and purposeful fasting. And as we'll see in chapter 2 next week, Nehemiah moves from prayer to action. And that's why I think this is active prayer. This is prayer in action that we see. But it starts with prayer. Nehemiah's prayer actually shows it doesn't start just with prayer. It starts with God. Appealing to, to God who is good and great and merciful and just. So how can we apply this now? What does Nehemiah's situation in prayer mean for us? Well, firstly, we already applied it to some degree. Do we care about our brothers and sisters enough to uproot our lives to go to them and to help? Also, start with God in your prayers. This is, this is simple. You probably already pray this way. I hope you do. But if you don't, think about this. Get to know who God is like. If our theology comes out when we pray, and I believe it does, then how are we praying about who God is? Are we running to him with a list of things for him to fix? That's not wrong inherently. We're called to bring our requests before the Lord. But if that's all we ever do, we're missing something. And so we start with who God is. He is good and great and merciful and loving. How has he demonstrated those things in your life? Consider those things and and talk to the Lord about it as you pray. Start with God, and if you don't know the Lord like you feel like you ought, start with the Word of God. Put that into you. In fact, there's a lot of great prayers in His Word that you can just pray back to Him. Start with the Lord. Start with His Word. Nehemiah had obviously studied the law. He'd studied the Word of God that he had access to. He knew what God had said through Moses. He was familiar with the details of the covenant, the cause and effect that was referred to, and now he understands how he needs to respond. So Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, here's some things that we can do just from chapter 1 of Nehemiah. I think these are listed in your notes. Number one is just observe and sympathize with your brothers and sisters in the church, in Christ. See what's going on. Don't be so consumed with what your own things are, good or bad, that you miss what's going on in your brothers' and sisters' lives. Sympathize with them when you find out. Also, intercede for them in prayer. If you say, I'll pray for you, you better do it. <laughs> put, a, put a reminder in your phone. Make a list. Pray. Don't miss it. It's the first thing Nehemiah did. He prayed. Next, recognize who God is, but also recognize who you are. You're frail, you're weak, you're susceptible to sin and temptation, just like the brother or sister you may be praying for. But remember who we are, remember who God is. He's always faithful. I think also we need to be moved to personal repentance. When we've acknowledged our sin, as Nehemiah does, we say, Lord, forgive this. We repent of this. We turn away from it. And then if you're led by the Spirit of the Lord, fast. 
We've got lots of resources. We're not going to talk about that a whole lot here, but there's lots of resources that we can give to you on what that would look like, what that would mean. Intentionally fast. Remember God's promises, what he has said, the cause and effect, if you return to me. And then also remember what he's called his people to do and to not do. And this, lastly, be prepared for sympathy, love, and prayer to move you to action. So don't pray with the expectation that that's the end of it. That's the end of your involvement. Yes, pray. Start there, please. But don't expect that that's all you're going to do. Let the sympathy that the Lord puts on your heart, the love that he's given to you, shown you, and now given to you for others, let that move you to action, to do something with the prayer that you've prayed. I don't think, though, that you can really be motivated to love other people this way or pray for them appropriately if you don't already have a relationship with the Lord. It can't happen the right way because you don't know who God is. You don't know who the creator genuinely is. The great God who is worthy to be worshiped, who is worthy to be feared and revered, but who is also full of steadfast love and mercy. Verse five tells us that those who love him and obey his commandments, they treasure those things about him. They treasure the Lord for who he is. If you, if you say, well, if I don't already know God, I don't know God this way, how can I? Well, there's good news. Verse 9 helps us look back. Return to me. Keep my commandments and do them. This is it. And this is, I'm not suggesting a works-based salvation here because that's not real salvation. What I'm suggesting is that you turn to the Lord away from your sin And when the Spirit of God moves in you, in salvation, you will then have the desire and the ability to say, God, I want to do what you've called me to do. I want to turn away. I want to forsake all these other things that just, in the end, bring momentary satisfaction. Turn to the Lord away from yourself in repentance and faith. Listen to what he says. Put the Word of God in you. Listen to what he says and then do it. Strive for godliness, love the truth, obey his word, understand who you are apart from God, but more importantly, understand who God is and what he's done for you. Then understand what he's called you to do and let prayer motivate you to action. And brothers and sisters, that can be applied on a hundred different levels and we can't go through them all, but just, I'm just thinking about our, our, the care portal training that's coming up. Can we sympathize with people that are in hard situations? Can the prayers that we hopefully are praying for people like that motivate us to action, to be involved, to maybe take a couple hours of our week to go and visit with a family who's in need, to give of funds or other resources that we have to put our faith into action? Does your prayer, do your prayers move you to something more? That's what I want the Lord for, to do for us as a result of Nehemiah 1. Let's pray. Lord, move us 
to action. Cause, cause prayer that doesn't hasn't reached its full potential. I don't think Lord, if we pray for a brother or sister in their time of need, that's good and right. But if we don't then go and, and give them a cup of water in your name, if we, if we see someone without clothing and we just, you know, say, well, God bless you. I hope you stay warm. And we do nothing to address their needs. Is, is your love really in us? So Lord, motivate us as we do dedicate ourselves to prayer, which is the first line of defense, which is the first thing that we ought to go to when we find out there's a problem. When we do and we've prayed and maybe even fasted, Lord, are we motivated then to go and do something about it? We need one another in the body, in our communities, in our families. We need each other, Lord. And so I pray more and more that you would push this into our minds that you have saved us into a family, not to be a bump on a log, but by grace, through faith, for action. And so now, Lord, may prayer motivate us to do that today. Maybe it means before we leave, catching a friend and sympathizing with them. Maybe it means before we watch the game that we contact a, a brother or a sister and check in on them and see how they're doing. Whatever it is, Lord, may we be motivated to action as a result of what you've done in our lives and who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.